It's good to be in the house of the Lord this morning, isn't it? Um, I'm excited to be here. My name is Pastor Jake. I'm the lead pastor here. Before we get into the word today, I do have something I want to touch base with you on. Uh, We are at Great Oaks looking at, in the fall, launching uh, online church, okay, a campus, an online campus, and how many of you have heard of online church, like other churches who do it, and you can kind of watch live, so we didn't make it up, it's been going on for a while, and so... uh, you, you can watch live online, and we'll have people there uh, discussing and checking in and praying for people even, uh, you know, through the, through the keys, right? And so that's all. We're planning on doing that in the fall, and it gives us two things, really. Uh, we're talking about live broadcasting our services, right? Live broadcasting from worship all the way through the message to the end in video format. And so it gives us two things, really. One is that for you regulars who are here all the time, but then you have to travel every now and then, you're out, you're on vacation, or you're on a work trip, or whatever. You're in Japan, although you'd have to wake up in the middle of the night if you're in Japan, Uh, But you just log in, you just go watch online, and you can stay engaged with your church family. You can be watching and praising, and and I don't think it's a substitute for coming to church, so don't hear it, don't be like, oh, I'm doing doing church in my PJs every Sunday now. Don't do that, all right? Still come, still still have a small group, still, still, you know, be in uh, community with one another. But that's one thing that we get. The other thing we get is just that uh, it opens up uh, infinite possibilities, right? It opens up a lot of people that we can reach with the gospel of Jesus Christ through this platform. And so um, you can share it, you know, with your friends. You can, if you've got a family, that, a family member that moved away or whatever, or, or you just know a friend that, hey, you need to, you, you don't go to church and would you, would you be interested in just watching online on a Sunday morning and just checking it out one time? Uh, you can do that, and through that, God's truth and God's gospel, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ can go out, right? And so those are the two kind of aspects of this. So um, we need to upgrade kind of our uh, infrastructure so the internet goes in order to broadcast. We need to buy some video cameras in order to do this. And uh, the other thing that it, it sets us up for when we are able to do live uh, video broadcasts of our service, do church online, uh, is that in the future, uh, we can then create other physical campuses uh, that watch online, that watch the video. Okay, does that make sense? And so we could create, we could launch a campus in Pekin or a Great Oaks campus in Bartonville or something like that. And uh, we can gather people there and it'll be live worship. Somebody be there actually leading worship. But the teaching time would be the video that we're using these cameras for. And the same thing as Church Online. Everybody tracking with me so far? And so this is kind of where we're going and we want to reach, it's all for the sake of the gospel, all so that we can reach more people with the gospel. And so um, we're, we're planning on doing that and one key step in that uh, is happening uh, the first Sunday in August. This will feel a little bit different in here because we will have our new sound system. This has been in process for, for maybe a year or so, maybe longer than that. I think Pastor Nate's been asking for about 10 years that we get a get a new sound system, but uh, so it's just happening now. It just happens to be after I got here that it's happening now, and so we're taking money out of our reserves, out of the savings that we've got in, as a church to do that, and this, I think this system was, we used it uh, when we rented the school. Uh, how many of you were here when we were renting school, Great Oaks was renting school? So we were using this system then. Um, it is, I think it was created in 1937. I'm not sure, but I think it's something like that. And so it deserves a Viking burial, okay, because it's done, it's fought well. And uh, so it's amazing God has allowed us to use this this long. And so that's happening uh, first Sunday in August. And because of that, we can do this video thing. So all that to say, on August 20th, um, I want to invite you uh, to consider, to prayerfully consider giving to online church uh, extra above and, beyond, above and beyond your tithe and offering. If you give tithe you know, you move it over to online church, that's not going to help us any because we still got to pay light bill, right? So still give your normal tithe, but if you can prayerfully consider giving above and beyond that towards church online, uh, that would be awesome because it would allow us to uh, get the, the equipment we need to do this. And so uh, we're looking at about $20,000. And so it's a, it's a big thing, but we, it sets us up for the future and helps us to reach uh, people. And so um, if you are, uh, if you've been blessed with great means and you've got a huge savings account with a lot of money and you want to just write a check for 20000 just talk to me afterwards, all right? I, just talk to me. And then, then next week I'll just come up and be like, it's done. We don't have to take an offering, okay? 
But uh, otherwise, I would love for you to just give a little bit above or give whatever the Lord leads uh, towards that. That's going to be August 20th. We're going to take that offering. You can give before then. You can go online. You can text it in. You give next week. You can hand a check to somebody. I mean, hand it to the right person, not like the person at McDonald's, but somebody here. Um, and, and it'll go towards that. But August 20th, I wanted to give you a heads up on that. And I believe God is going to do something awesome. Uh, our attendance has been up. Uh, God has been moving. Uh, there's a lot of buzz, a lot of good things that I'm hearing. I believe fall, August, and September, we're going to see a huge increase in attendance. And this is just the next step towards reaching even more people for Christ. And so I want you to get involved in that August 20th. All right. Everybody with me so far? Okay, one guy's with me. Okay, thanks. Uh, so, how are you guys doing? Everybody doing good? Look like you got some, uh, got some sun. You're looking good, all right? You're looking good. Uh, let's get into the word today, shall we? If you have your Bible, you can head over to Second John. That's where we're going to be today. Um, if you haven't been here in a while, we have been in a summer series called Small Fry where we're looking at kind of the more overlooked uh, books of the New Testament, the, the forgotten books of the New Testament, and uh, that includes Jude, Philemon, 2nd and 3rd John. And so we started in Jude, we spent five weeks there talking about fighting for faith. And then the last two weeks we spent in Philemon, and we were talking about forgiving with love, and forgiveness and reconciliation, confrontation. And if you missed any of that, you can go online or go on iTunes and grab the podcast uh, so you can catch up. Uh, but now we're going to talk about 2nd uh, and 3rd John for the next four weeks. And let, let me start this way. When, when I was a kid and, and in school and even into, into high school, I loved taking tests. I know that's kind of weird, right? Most kids don't like taking tests. Like all my classmates, they'd be like dreading the test, loathing the test, cursing the test. Uh, but I loved it. I liked taking tests because it, it, it was a chance for me to like show what I had learned, right? I studied or I didn't. You know, I knew it or I didn't. And I, it was a chance for me to kind of show that, that I, what I could do, prove this newfound skill or knowledge or whatever. I liked it. And the main thing I liked about tests was the objectivity of them. They were objective. Like you, you either you knew it or you didn't. Like the, the top number on the top of the sheet didn't lie. I mean, you were in or out. You made a B or a C or an A or whatever. It just told the truth. But as I got into high school and I got into college, I found out that not all tests were like that. So there was a kind of test, a kind of test that I despised with the rest of the students, okay? The essay test. Dun, dun, dun. How many of you have taken an essay test? I hate essay tests. And I hated essay tests in school. The reason I hated essay tests is because it was like one question and everything righted on it, right? Everything was going to be decided by this one question. And the other reason I didn't like it is that it was subjective, it felt like there was no clear right and wrong. Like I, I would write out this essay and I could be right and not explain it well enough and still get points taken off of. I could be right and misspell a word and get points taken off, right? And then I felt like I didn't trust the teacher, right? I just don't trust you teachers who, who grade essay tests because there's no way you're not being subjective about that. You're like, I like this guy, 100, all right? <laughs> well, I need to put this guy in his place. On the regular test, he always makes 100, so 99. I'm like, come on, 99? Why don't you just give me 100? It's like, as if the, the answer to this essay is, you know, the, the perfect answer is not out there, right? It's just impossible to, to get the perfect answer. I didn't like that subjective side of of tests, essay questions were too abstract for me. Didn't seem to be a clear defined right and wrong. And, and I feel like the world has gone the way of the essay question. Now, let me just try to explain what I mean. Our society, our world, our time, we love relative truth. We love relative truth. Like, we'll throw out a question out there and we'll, 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 we'll ask an opinion. As long as you have an opinion and as long as you're able to explain it, then it's true. We just accept it as true. And we'll say things like, that might be true for you, but not for me. Or, you have to find your truth. Or, what does this mean to you? 
What does it mean to you? The world loves to say that the right answer can be two totally different and often opposite things, right? Opposing things. The world loves relative truth. So on the flip side of that, what's not popular and unacceptable is when, you, when we begin to live by absolute truth. You, you want to get in a fight with someone? Just go to Walmart and start telling people that there's such a thing as absolute truth. Tell them that truth is singular and it doesn't change and it's not based on your experience or your individual ideas or your logic or your feelings. Tell them that there is such a thing as right and wrong, truth and falsehood. And if you're not one, then you're the other. You want to get in an argument? Start telling people that Jesus is the only way. That's how you get in a fight. Start telling people about hell and the consequence of sin, the consequence of following your own truth instead of God's ultimate, absolute, eternal truth. That's how you get in an argument because our culture, our society, our world loves relative truth, subjective truth. But it hates absolute, defined, objective truth. You know why? Because subjective truth, relative truth, it's easier, isn't it? Relative truth is easier. Because if we start to say truth is absolute and singular and there is a right and a wrong, it means that I might be wrong. Nobody wants to be wrong. I don't want to be wrong. And so now I'm not going to change the way I believe or change the way I act. I'm just going to change truth. Then I can act the same way I've always acted and be right. That makes sense? It's easier if we just believe that truth is in flux. It's easier to deal with. But what I want to tell you this morning is that there is absolute truth. There is right and wrong. There are two eternal destinations, one good and one not so good. Absolute objective truth, although the implications of it are difficult to accept, does in fact exist. It does exist. When my daughter was four, uh, my daughter Kennedy, uh, I remember she was trying to grasp this, this idea that there's a right way and a wrong way to do things, not just like bad and good, right, good being right, bad being wrong, but just correct and incorrect. She was four and she's trying to figure out, okay, there's a way to do it and a way not to do it, and we had been teaching her to read at that time and, and write, and for a, a while she was, she was getting pretty good there, and, and uh, she was sounding words out, getting to where she could write just about anything she could read, and she's a genius, she gets that from her mom. Uh, but she could write, and, and so, but sometimes uh, she would write words backwards, from right to left, and uh, not as in like from the end to the beginning, that would have been really awesome, right? No, as in like she would write the first letter on the right, and then next the second letter, and it would be totally backwards, and she would even write letters backwards. It's no big deal. It's what kids do when they're learning how to write. Everybody does that. Um, and one time I was, I was watching her write, and I, she was writing her name, and she was writing it backwards, K on the right, and then E, and then N. And, and so I, I came over, and I just said, oh, sweetie, that's not how we write. We always write this way, always. It's always left to right. There's all, it's always left to right. You start with the K here, and then you go the E, and you go left to right. And she said, mm, I like writing this way. I like writing my way. And I was like, well, I like driving 100 miles an hour and eating a whole box of donuts in one sitting. But it's not correct. It's not right. Then she said, and I, this is how you know she's my daughter. She said, well, it's my name. It's my name. I'll write it however I want. It's my name. And I was like, well, I gave you that name, right? And I'll take it back. Just kidding. Just kidding. But I just talked to her, well, you can write it that way, but no one's going to be able to read it because everybody reads from left to right. So nobody's going to be able to read. The reason we all write this way is so that we can all read it and recognize it. Listen, beloved. Truth is that way. If everyone has their own truth, then there's no truth at all. 
If everyone writes in their own way and doesn't follow a predetermined correct way of writing, then the language falls apart and it ceases to exist altogether. So when you start talking about truth, it, it, doesn't, it just doesn't make sense to say that it's relative, to say that it changes, to say that your truth is not the same as my truth. It's either true or it's not. It's either right or it's wrong. There is absolute truth. It exists. 2nd John and 3rd John are about that truth. They're about absolute truth. And so I'm excited to get into those books with you over the next few weeks. But let's get into the background for a minute. Jude wrote Jude, and the Apostle Paul wrote Philemon. Who wrote 2nd John? John the second. <laughs> Incorrect. <laughs> no, it was, it was John, right? John wrote... I don't know if you, John the first, I don't know, but he wrote, he wrote second John, he wrote first John, he wrote third John, and the apostle John, and so in, in all there were five books of the, the New Testament that are written by the apostle John. It's the gospel of John, first, second, and third John, and what? Revelation, right, these second service people are on point, all right? Revelation, were you guys here during first service? Cheaters, cheaters. And when you read these books, one after another, especially the Gospel of John and, and 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, you can see a lot of similarities. And so I encourage you to do that this week. You can see how the Apostle John kind of writes and get used to his, his writing. But according uh, to church tradition, John was one of the last apostles to die. And the only, he was probably the last apostle to die, and the only one who didn't die uh, a martyr's death, wasn't murdered for his faith in Christ. And he died in his old age around 100 AD, some 70 years after Christ died. And he spent, the Apostle John did, spent a lot of his time in and around Ephesus. And he was known as the leader of those churches, the overseer of those churches. And we do know that at one point he was exiled to the island of Patmos because that's where he wrote uh, the book of Revelation. You can check that out. But uh, there was a whole group of churches in Ephesus who considered him the elder, the one who was in charge, um, the, kind of the bishop of the area, the overseer. And so one, one church history story that I love about John says uh, that in old age, uh, John was carried. He couldn't walk anymore, and he was carried to uh, church services uh, or church gatherings, I should call them. And, uh, and he, every time he was carried by these, his disciples to the church gathering, he would come in. And now this is the Apostle John. He hung out with Jesus. So you can imagine everybody's turns when he walks in a room, right? And so he walks in, uh, not walks in, he's carried in, and, uh, and everybody looks at him. And every time he, this would happen, at every gathering, he would say the same thing. He would say, little children, love one another. And so then they'd carry him out, and the next time they'd carry him in, and he'd say, little children, love one another. They'd carry him out, and they'd carry him in next time, little children, love one another. You can imagine, you're like, man, is he going to say anything else? Like, why does he keep saying that? And the story goes that one of his disciples asked him, hey, why do you keep saying the same thing over and over? And the apostle John answered, it's the Lord's command, and if this alone be done, it is enough. If this alone be done, it is enough. So that's, that's the Apostle John. And let's talk for a moment about kind of the context of these three letters, although we'll only be studying the last two in this series. This is where uh, it gets a little collegiate, okay? And so put your essay question hat on, all right? Put your, uh, put your collegiate hat on and kind of listen to me. Don't fall asleep. Um, John is writing these letters in direct opposition to a false sect of Christianity uh, that believed in and, and adhered to what's known as Gnosticism. So that for the three of you writing notes, that starts with G-N, okay? G-N. Although those writing notes know how to spell Gnosticism. That's how that works, right? So Gnosticism was just a little bit of a jab at the non-note takers, the majority in the room. And so Gnosticism, um, so there were actually a few different heretical groups that the early Christians had to deal with. One was labeled the Judaizers uh, by the apostle Paul, and they were a group that uh, believed that salvation was found in belief in Christ plus the law. So you had to follow kind of the Jewish law. You had to be a Jew and a Christian kind of to be saved. And, and that's the thing about cults and false groups and sects within Christianity, heretical 
groups within Christianity, people who want to change the gospel, that's the thing. They always want to add to it, right? And we're the same today. We want to say it's Christ on the cross and it's moral acts or whatever. It's Christ on the cross and it's this theology or this vein or this teaching, this understanding. It's Jesus plus this or plus that. No, the gospel is that he made him who knew no sin to be sin and then he poured his wrath out on him to get God glory and to save you and me. That's the gospel. That's the good news. You can't add your own stuff to it, right? But the Gnostics in particular, they, they thought that, or they taught that Christ was lower than God. So God, then Christ, and, and he only appeared to, to, to uh, come in the flesh in Jesus. He didn't actually do it. And, and so their teaching was that way. And right there we have a problem, right? Because if Christ isn't God and he wasn't here in bodily form, then he couldn't take our sin and our punishment on the cross. He couldn't absorb our sin and the death that we deserve on the cross. And so therefore, you and me aren't saved, right? It starts to crumble. You can see how it starts to crumble uh, if we go that route. The gospel is the gospel, you can't change it or find a loophole. If Christ isn't God, then he can't absorb sin and death for us. So the only way the gospel works is the way it worked, right? Tracking with me? The only way the gospel works is the way it worked. All right, so the Gnostics also had this kind of dualistic belief thing going on where they said that matter or the physical realm was bad, all bad, flesh was bad, and spirit was good, and they would say there's these two realities and they can't really touch, they can't really be existent in the same place, and so when it came to the teaching about Jesus or, or Christology, this, this, this study of the nature of Christ, um, they would say that, no, Jesus was physical and matter and flesh, and he was just a man, but then there was a spirit called Christ that came on him for a season and then left before he was crucified. And the word gnosis in Greek is where we get the word Gnostic from, and it just means knowledge. And so they would say, we're not saved by Jesus' death on the cross because that wasn't Christ. Christ had already, the, the spirit of Christ had already left him. But, but rather, we're saved by attaining this high level of spirituality, this high level of knowledge, this insider knowledge, this enlightenment. We get better, and that's how we're saved. Are you confused? Good, I got you right where I want you, right? Because that's exactly how these Christians were feeling at this time in and around Ephesus. They had this group of people coming in, teaching something different than the apostles, but they seemed to know Jesus, they seemed to love Jesus, and, and they were getting confused. And they didn't have this whole, like, 2,000 years of church history and heritage to lean on like you and I do. I mean, this was all new to them, right? And so they're hearing this, and they're going, wait a minute, which one is true? Is it what the apostles taught, or is it what these guys are teaching? And I thought I was saved, but maybe I'm not saved, right? Maybe I'm not. I'm confused. It was, it was confusing. And so John, up in age and no doubt with a heavy heart, he sits down to write some letters to the churches and the believers in the area addressing these things. And his goal, his purpose, is for them to read this letter and go, Oh, now I get it. Oh, okay, now I understand, and be confident in their faith and in the teachings the apostles have been giving them about Christ. There's confusion about what is true, and the apostle John wants there to be confidence in the only truth, right? There's all these truths going around, there's things that everybody is saying true is true, but they're competing, and there's confusion, and the apostle John is writing to say, no, have confidence in the only truth. He wants to kind of nail that down, and so we've got Four weeks in 2nd and 3rd John, and we're going to talk about these four ideas. We're going to talk about truth and love today, truth and lies next week, truth and legacy in the following week, and then our last Sunday in the Small Fry series, uh, we'll talk about 3rd John, or be in 3rd John, and we'll talk about truth and consequence. So truth and love, truth and lies, truth and legacy, and truth and consequence. And 
the overall idea is that we fellowship, we connect, we do life together. Yes, that's absolutely true. But we fellowship, connect, do life together in truth, right? There is a singular truth that binds us together, right? There is a foundational truth. So if you're getting together and fellowshipping over coffee or chips and guacamole or, or your kids that are both in baseball or whatever, that's, that's okay. But when we are talking about connecting as church people, as followers of Christ, there is a foundational truth that keeps us together. We connect and we fellowship in truth. That's the idea over the next four weeks. So look at uh, 2 John, starting in verse 1. It says, The elder to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the what? Truth. Because of the what? Truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace and mercy, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in what? truth and love. Everybody say truth and love. And so the elder that is, is mentioned here is the Apostle John, and the elect lady and her children are the, the churches and, um, that he's writing to. And he, and he says he loves them in truth, and not just him, but all those who know the truth. And then he says the truth abides in us and will be with us forever. Then he greets them in truth and in love. And so two things I, I want to chat with you about in these first three verses. Um, he, he says we know the truth because the truth abides in us. And so when we talk about truth, we're not just talking about an idea. We're talking about a person. When we talk about truth, we're not just talking about an idea. We're talking about a person. A person. It's not some intangible philosophical thing. Truth is not in flux. It's not dependent on your experience, your mood, or your logic. John says that that to know the truth is to have the truth live in you. We know truth because the truth knows us, right? We know truth because the truth knows us. Truth has a name. It's Jesus. To know truth You have to know Christ. There's no other way to do this. Truth is found in no other source. Truth lives in no other place. Truth has no other home. Truth is not just something you know. It's someone who lives in you. The foundation of all that is true is Christ and Christ alone. Not Jesus plus science or Jesus plus logic or Jesus plus religion or Jesus plus what your friends say or society says. Jesus alone is the foundation of all that is true. If you want to know the truth, you need to know Jesus. The truth abides in us, John says. Not an idea or a concept, a person. Jesus. The second thing out of these three verses is this idea of truth and love together. Truth and love. You see, what you've been told is that you can't act in truth and in love at the same time. That truth and love don't really go together. That's what you've been told. That to love is to make truth secondary. That to speak the truth, the absolute truth, is to not love. You've been told that love means agreement, that love means tolerance, that love means we don't ruffle feathers, that to tell the truth as a singular thing is to judge someone who doesn't agree with you that that is in fact true and therefore it's not loving. That's what you've been told. That's the message you're being pummeled with out there in the world and that's the message, God help us, that many of you have been hammered with even inside of churches. And if you ever have the guts to speak up, if you ever have the guts to speak the truth, you're labeled as judgmental, intolerant, backwards, old-fashioned, not loving. But what I want to tell you today is that inherent in the idea of love is the foundation of truth. Inherent in the idea of love is the foundation of truth. In other words, to not tell the truth is to not love. Love includes truth. Hear me, telling the truth might not always include love, but love always includes truth. Think about that a second. Telling the truth might not always include love, but love always includes truth every time. 
Truth is singular. Truth is absolute. Truth is a person. There's no other way to God the Father except through this person, Jesus Christ. There, are, there is a right and a wrong. There are two eternal destinies, one really good and one not so good. With all that at stake, heaven and hell hanging in the balance, how could it be loving to withhold truth? How could that be loving? It wouldn't have been loving for me to tell Kennedy she could keep writing her name backwards. It's not loving for you to pass by a a toddler playing in traffic and not get out and save that kid's life because you don't want to offend a parent. That's not loving. And if you believe the Bible that hope and joy and peace and salvation and the, the fulfillment that your friend and every other human being on planet earth is searching for is found in Jesus Christ, it's not loving for you to withhold that truth, is it? It's not loving for you. It's not loving of you to keep from telling your friend the truth when he's talking about how he knows people think, think drugs are bad, but they really help him relax. And they help him do his job and they keep him awake when he needs to stay awake. It's not loving for you to withhold the truth from him in that moment. It's not loving for you to to withhold the truth from your friend who's saying, I'm really excited to be moving in with my girlfriend. That's not loving of you to withhold truth. Or, Or if he's saying, man, I've really been getting into these teachings of Hinduism. And it's pretty crazy and pretty cool and pretty interesting. And I think... I'm kind of leaning that way. I'm thinking of becoming a part of that religion. It's not loving of you to withhold the truth from that person, right? The Apostle John says truth and love. They go together. You may be able to speak the truth without love, but you cannot possibly love without speaking the truth. I'm not saying you need to hit them over the head with the truth every time they walk in the door. I'm not saying let's argue every time we see them, right? That's not what I'm saying. But what I am saying is that truth has got to be in the mix. That a proclamation of truth has got to be in the mix somewhere. I'm just saying that that, that truth is found in Jesus, and Jesus is love. And you cannot have love without truth. It's impossible. I know you're hearing a different message. I know you're hearing a different message out there, but I promise you, it's impossible. Maybe just something to think about. Look at verse 4. 2 John, verse 4. He says, I rejoiced greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth, just as we were commanded by the Father. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love. This is love. That we walk according to his commandments. This is the commandment. Just as you have heard from the beginning, so that you should walk in it. So now, truth is not just something you know. Truth is not just someone who lives in you. But it's something you walk in, right? It's something you walk in. You walk in the truth. And John's saying there are these commandments. There are these commandments in God's word from Jesus, from God, uh, that we need to follow. What's he saying? He's saying there is a right and there is a wrong, right? He's saying there's right and wrong and there are these commandments that we need to follow. There's absolute truth. Truth has already been decided. Truth's foundation is is God. These things are not up for debate. Truth is not in flux. And what is love? He says love is following these commands, walking according to truth, right? That's what love is, walking according to truth, walking according to his commands. And, And that's what Jesus said. He said, if you love me, you'll follow my commands. If you love me, you'll follow my commands. Well, I like Jesus. I just don't agree with his, this teaching on sexual immorality. I'd rather not have that. But I love Jesus. Well, I love God. I, I'm a Christian. I, I just don't believe I need to be a part of a church, part of a body. I don't feel like I need to really participate. And I love Jesus. I just think... A lot of stuff in the Bible is pretty outdated. 
You know, so I'm kind of not doing that. But I do love Jesus. I love God, don't get me wrong, and, and he knows my heart, but I also love my boyfriend, and he makes me happy, and, and so it's no big deal that he's not a Christian. It's not a big deal. I love God, but I'm not going to tithe. I'm not going to give money to the church to support the local church. I'm not going to do that. John's going, none of that makes sense. None of that makes sense. Sense There is a right and wrong. John's saying there is a singular truth, absolute truth. You can't love without truth. Jesus said to love is to follow his commands. There is action involved. It's not just belief. It's not just an idea. Truth leads to action. James says it this way. Know this, my beloved brothers, In James 1, starting in verse 20. Know this, my beloved brothers. Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And then in verse 22. But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. So James says, listen, listen, listen. Be quick to hear. Make sure you hear. But don't just hear, right? Don't just be hearers of the word. Be doers too. And so intense is James about this subject that that he says, you deceive yourselves if you're not doers but hearers only. You you who think that you can hear the truth but then know it and do nothing about it, you're deceiving yourselves, James says. So that's where James is on this subject and The Apostle Paul is known for being all about grace, not law, not rules, not having to do a lot, but grace, 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 grace. Don't try to perform for God. God's grace is where it's at. He was all about that. And yet he believed the same thing, that the love of God, the acceptance of his grace and his truth always produces some kind of action. It's shown in the way you live because he said, he wrote this in Ephesians 4.1. I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Walk worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And then he says this in Philippians 1.27, Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let the way you live line up with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Listen, you, you can't love Jesus and choose not to walk in the truth. You can't love Jesus and choose not to walk in the truth. You can't love Jesus and choose not to follow his commands. It's impossible. And that might sound harsh and overly black and white. You might want to call me legalistic or judgmental. But it's not me saying it. It's John. It's Jesus. It's James. It's the Apostle Paul. It's the Bible. Read it. It's the Bible. I mean, this, this is, there's no question about this. The biblical stance on this is very clear. Right behavior always follows right belief, right? Right behavior always follows right belief. Correct belief always produces correct behavior. They go together. Truth always ends in action. We live in such a crazy world, don't we? I mean, it's, a, it's crazy out there. It's just crazy. The ideas we have, the way we live, it's just crazy. Don't get me wrong. I don't want to change. I like this time, okay? I like living in this time. Like, I don't want to go back to no indoor plumbing, right? I don't want to go back to where I'm leached. That would be bad. I like the blood inside my body. I don't want to be bloodlet, right, because I have a cold. I don't want that. So I, and I like today, so don't get me wrong. I'm not one of those guys who's like, oh, I wish I was back in the 1800s. I'm like, Pfft. You can have the 1800s. I'm happy where I'm at, right? So that's, that's I like my phone. I like technology. I like, I like all that. But we live in a crazy, crazy world. I mean, everything is being redefined and rearranged. And truth is, is up for grabs. Love means silent agreement in our culture. Everyone is so wishy-washy. And the line between right and wrong has gotten so blurred. And it's, sometimes it's just not even there, right? There's no line. It's a crazy time. 
the church, you and me. We have to be unashamed proclaimers of the truth. The church, you and me, we have to be unashamed proclaimers of truth. In love, always in love. We always proclaim truth in love, but never attempting to love without truth. We never attempt to love without truth. We have to know the truth, let the truth know us, let the truth live in us, be proclaimers of truth. And I think one of the reasons that people run from truth and rebel against this idea of absolute truth is that they believe truth is the enemy of freedom. That truth is the enemy of freedom. When we talk about absolute truth and Jesus' commands and and right and wrong, they, they look at that like they're being chained. They think they've been, they're being held back from freedom. They think truth, in following the commands of God, they think of it as a prison, keeping us back from some kind of joy that is on the outside of that prison. But it's the opposite. Truth is not the enemy of freedom. Now, I've heard it explained this way a bunch of times. When you have kids, things change, right? I mean, they just do. And so, no matter that you read like 37 books leading up to the, you know, what to expect while you're expecting, and then the baby comes and you're like, I'm not ready, right? And you take this baby home, you're like, wow, God gave me this baby, I'm probably going to break it. And you go in and you're trying to figure out life and you start to realize things. And as you've got this baby in your arms in your living room, you're looking around and you're going, wow, I didn't know, but we live in a house of horrors. <laughs> this is dangerous. How have we survived all these years? Right? And this baby starts to crawl and it starts to get real serious. And you're like, oh, wow, it's really easy to get electrocuted in here. Oh, wow, it's really easy to go into the kitchen to the lower cabinet, crawl over there, grab some Windex and drink it and die a horrible death. This is how have we survived. It's real easy to pull over a, a, a cabinet on a two-year, you know, a two-foot-tall little and get smothered. This is how have, we, how have we lived this long. And so you begin to baby-proof everything, right? So you get, like, the outlet covers and you do all that. Listen, if you have outlet covers and no kids, why? <laughs> why? Like, are you still struggling with that whole don't stick your finger in there? It's like, just don't, all right? Just don't. Um, you get the doorknob covers that I can't open. I don't know about you guys. But I'm like, okay, well, you put those on. Aaron's like, we got to put these on. Like, you put them on, I can't go in there. So I'm not just going to stay in the living room or what? Like, I just can't get in there, you know? Kennedy walks up, opens it. I'm like, oh, thanks for letting me in. Right? You, get the, you lock the lower cabinets. You get all this stuff. You baby-proof everything when your kids start to crawl and you start to realize, man, I'm living in this dangerous place. I've got I to protect my kid. Then your kids get old enough to walk and run, and they get to where they can play outside. And that changes the game. That's a game-changer, right, parents? It's a game-changer. And so you go out into your backyard, and you go, oh, there's a busy street right there. I never saw that street. Wow, and... Because cars are the enemy of toddlers. You're like, I got to do something. And if you don't have a fence, what do you do? You build a fence, right? That wasn't too hard. If you don't have a fence, you build a fence because you want to protect your kids, right? You want to protect your kids. And so you build this fence and you tell your kids, you say, man, enjoy the whole yard, okay? Dig, run, play, hit a wiffle ball, find a worm, do whatever, just run, have a good time. Please just don't climb the fence, right? You tell your, your, your people, your kids, don't climb the fence, because it's dangerous and I don't want you to get hurt. So I know this looks like a, a barrier and a, and a restriction, Actually, it's life-giving. It's life-preserving. You build a fence not as a jail to keep them locked up, but as a barrier to protect them from the dangers on the outside, right? I've heard it explained many times that God's commands, God's truth, is like pickets in a fence. Just trying to protect us from the outside, just trying to keep God's kids from running out in the street and getting hurt by Satan and sin. And what God would tell us is you have the whole yard. 
I love you. I'm going to give you my Holy Spirit. You're going to have freedom to run around and play and do whatever you want within this yard. Just stay in the yard. Just don't climb the fence because it's not worth it. Hey, kids, enjoy all of your freedom. Explore the whole yard. Just don't climb the fence. I don't want you to get hurt. I don't want you to get hurt. Truth is not the enemy of freedom or the opposite of love. Like a four-year-old, you could write words however you want, but that's not freedom. If you continue to do that, you will not be free. You'll be shackled to illiteracy. Unable to write a note. Unable to write an essay to get into college. Unable to write a love note to your beloved that they can read. But... If you learn and follow the predetermined laws of language, the true way to write, then you'll experience freedom, right? The freedom of being able to express your ideas and write notes and do whatever you want with that ability. And your ideas and all that will be understood by others. Listen, I know I can be intense every now and then. I know I can be intense. I... I know sometimes I come off pretty rigid, but it's not for lack of love. It's because I love you. And things are so confusing out there. Things are so confusing. I want you to be founded in truth and love. Both. And I wonder if God, like a father talking to a four-year-old who's writing their name backwards isn't looking at us and the way we deal with truth like it's ours to change. I I wonder if if he's not looking at us, shaking his head, going, no, sweetie. No, this is the way it works. I, I promise you, this is the best way. That's not how it works. That's not how truth works. I wonder if he's not kind of shaking his head, going, sweetie, if you'll just trust me, if you'll just listen to me, if you'll just follow what I'm saying. I promise you, I'll show you the way. It's not because I'm holding you back. It's because I'm keeping you safe. I wonder if God's not like that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your truth, the Bible, your word that can pierce our hearts. I pray that if when we talked about this today, as we talked through absolute truth, that if our initial response was anger or opposition or pride, I pray that that would all fall away and that your truth would reign supreme, remain and abide in us and create action, create faith. I pray that as we leave this place today, you would... Help us to be unashamed proclaimers of the truth, that in a world where truth is unacceptable, absolute truth is unacceptable, I pray, God, that you would help us to be founded in your truth, the source of truth, Jesus Christ, that you would help us to be founded in Christ. That it wouldn't be argumentative or trying to debate people into heaven, but that at the same time, it wouldn't be that we hold back from truth because we think that's what love is. Let us... Speak truth, God, in love. Live out the truth in love. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed as you're just trying to think, what is God speaking to me today? What's something I can take away from this? Whether you've been a Christian for 40 years or four months or you're not a Christian, you can just pray and ask God, well, what do you want to speak to me through this message today? What do you want me to do? As you're doing that with our eyes closed and our heads bowed, I just want to talk to you who, are, who have not yet accepted the truth of Jesus Christ. Maybe you're in here, and if you're honest with you, man, you haven't accepted the truth. You, you live in a world of, of, of relative truth. You, you, you can't imagine accepting or haven't been able to imagine accepting truth as singular and absolute. Maybe you've kind of done this Christian thing for a while as a, as a hobby, but in your heart of hearts, you know that you don't believe the truth. You haven't yet submitted to the truth and, and dealt with all the implications of that truth. Maybe you've just kind of wandered in here with a friend and 
this Jesus stuff really hasn't been for you. But today you're going, I want to, it makes sense, this absolute truth thing. It makes sense that if, if everybody has their own truth, that it all starts to fall down. It all starts to fall apart. And you're going, I want to accept the absolute truth of Jesus Christ. I want to give my life over to him 100%. I want to submit to him. If that's you today, you just need to just say a prayer. Just ask God to change your life. Submit your life to him. Ask him to help you do that. Tell him, I accept your truth, God, as absolute and the only way. I accept you, Jesus. I want to live for you. And then from this day forward, just do it. Just begin to be a proclaimer of the truth. Begin to live based on the truth that you are told in Christ. But if that's you, I would love to pray for you today. So with our eyes closed and our heads bowed, if you want to give your life over to Christ today, you don't want it to just be a, a, a momentary thing. You're serious. You want, to, you want to submit. You want to get help. You want to be discipled. You want to make this a Monday through Saturday thing as much as a Sunday thing. If that's you and you want to accept absolute truth in Jesus today, you want to give your life over to him. Would you just raise your hand for me so I can pray for you? I see that hand. Anyone else? Yeah, I see those hands. Keep them up. I want to pray for you. In Jesus' name, I pray, God, for those who would accept your truth today. I pray, God, for those who know they need to, are stirred towards that, and yet have yet to take that step. I pray that you would give them the boldness and the courage to take it, take it right now to give their lives over to you. But those who are ready, those who are excited, those who want to submit to your truth in this room, who raise their hand, I just pray in Jesus' name that you would solidify that, that you would put a hedge of protection around them, that you would keep them in the truth, that you, Jesus, would abide in them and transform them into a new creation, God. Make it real, make it lasting in Jesus' name. One more thing with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. If you're a Christian and you just know you've compromised on some truth or another and you're going, yeah, I don't know how I got here. I just kind of compromised a little bit at a time and now I'm way over here, but I know that over there is truth and I, I need to, I just want to give you a second just to make that decision. I'm not going to have you stand up or raise your hand or do anything crazy. I just want to give you a second to, to make that decision to go, I, I want to make a course correction. I need to stop compromising in this area with a family member or with a friend or, or whatever. I'm going to make a course correct, correction back to absolute truth, back to biblical truth. I don't know what it is that you've compromised on, but just pray and ask for God's help. Lord, I pray that you would help us not to compromise. And those of us who have, I pray, Jesus, that you would lead us to go back to absolute truth to not compromise, to be proclaimers of the truth. Give us boldness and courage to do that. In Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. Why don't you stand with me? Here's my prayer for you today. May you be people committed to the truth. May you allow the truth to live in you. And may you be bold enough to speak the truth in love. We need you. We need you out there. I'll see you next week. We'll have some kids singing. Invite some people. Be a good Sunday. God bless.